Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries with founder and director, Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing. Well, today we're going to talk about how to treat your pastor. How to treat your pastor. This is a, a message that I don't think a pastor would preach, and you understand why. It'd be very self-serving or could come across that way. So I thought, what a good opportunity for me to come as not being the pastor of this church and say a few words in preparation for your new pastor who will be coming soon. Now, when this, I had nothing to do with the search committee. I was not on the search committee, and uh, they really didn't consult me, except they did let me review the help-wanted uh, job description. Uh, and it, w- it went like this, and you can see why I, I kind of wanted to give them a little feedback on it. It says, wanted a minister for growing church, a real challenge for the, uh, the right man. Applicant must show experience as shop worker, office worker, educator at all levels, artist, salesman, diplomat, writer, theologian, politician, children's worker, minor league athlete, psychologist, vocational counselor, funeral director, wedding consultant, master of ceremonies, circus clown, missionary, social worker. Must know about all the problems of birth, marriage, and death, also conversant with latest theories and practice of pediatrics, economics, and nuclear science. Should have ongoing friendly disposition at all times. Should be captivated, captivating speaker and intent listener. Will pretend he enjoys hearing about bad knees and back aches. Must be... Will- <laughs> what, I, what I have found out when I go speak at a church, I never mention my back ache or bad knees because... People come up afterwards with a dozen home remedies <laughs> that I've already tried, but it worked for them. Must be willing to work long hours, subject to call any time of day or night, adaptable to sudden interruption. Will spend at least 25 hours preparing sermons and an additional 10 hours reading books and magazines. Should be about 29 with 30 years preaching experience. Should preach sermons that remind of Moody and Spurgeon, yet are so simple, even preschool children are blessed. Must sing and lead music. Applicant's wife should be stunning and plain. Dress dress smartly but conservatively. Be gracious and get along with everybody, even other women. (laughs) This is why I wanted to talk to them about this. She must be willing to work with... In the church kitchen, teach Sunday school, um, babysit, run the copy machine, wait tables, never listen to gossip, and never become discouraged. So when I saw that job description, I I said, you might want to modify that a little bit, and I think they did, and that's not the one that went out public. So how do we treat a pastor then? You know, it has a lot to do with expectations, and if you have those kind of expectations, of course, anybody that comes along is going to be a disappointment because you haven't had many pastors up here that can sing, for one thing. (laughs) Um, Or talk about nuclear physics. So There's always room for disappointment. It depends on what your expectations are, and that's pretty much true about anything in life, isn't it? Um, and, and, And it's a new relationship when a pastor comes that you have to learn to establish. Like any new relationship, uh, you have to get used to the other person. They have to get used to you. Uh, There's a honeymoon period, of course, 
within any kind of relationship. Uh, it, it usually goes kind of like this. Uh, the first year, we say uh, the pastor. And then the second year, we say our pastor. And then by the third year, we get to know him and appreciate him. We say my pastor. So there's a little evolution in the relationship there, but it takes time. It takes time for people to get to know one another. Um, so your pastor would probably not preach the things and say the things I'm going to say because they would seem self-serving. And it's a little bit different of a message today, too, because I'm not really expositing one passage of Scripture. I'm going to do it topically, and I'm going to use Scripture that relates. I can't say it always relates directly. You'll see what I mean. I'm not going to be unbiblical, but I'm going to relate some of my experiences and so forth and some appropriate Scriptures. But, you know, when you look at the New Testament, you don't see a lot of the New Testament talking about how to treat your pastor. There's just a few verses that directly address that issue. When I mean, you think about it, though, the New Testament, most of it was written to pastors or the leaders in the church, so it's mostly telling the leaders how to treat your people or how the people should treat one another. But it really is all related. So it was kind of difficult to build a sermon around one particular passage. And in fact, I want you to know what I did as I prepared this message. I said, well, I'll tie in some of my experiences, but you know what? That might not, that might not be good enough because I have such a myopic view uh, you know, of what my experiences were at, um, at, at, uh, for 19 years as lead pastor, and I had previous uh, assistant pastor experience. I should consult others. So I sent out an email to about six other pastors, and uh, I said, just off the top of your head, I don't want to take a lot of time, off the top of your head, what are some things that you would say? And I got some good suggestions back, and I've incorporated them in my remarks, not, maybe not word for word. I might have changed the, the wording, but the ideas are there. So it's reflecting what is in common agreement among at least seven of us pastors is a good advice for you and how to treat your pastor. But I think it's first, first of all, we ought to start out by talking about what your pastor wants you to know. And there are some things he probably wants you to know. Like, for example, he's not the Messiah. Okay? He's, he's not going to cure every, every illness and heal every problem and uh, raise people from the dead. That's not what he's here to do. Uh, there was, there's, if you want to take a verse that's anywhere related, it's when they came up to John the Baptist and asked him if he was the Messiah. And he said, no, I'm not the Messiah, but I'm talking about the one who's coming. And so he pointed to the Messiah. And when you think about it, that's the job of any pastor. It's to point to Jesus Christ and say, it's not me. It's not me. You're not coming to church for me. You're coming to church to learn about Jesus Christ, our Savior. Your pastor is not born of immaculate conception. Um, he is gifted in only some things. He's not gifted in everything. Some things he'll do well, and some things he would appreciate help with. He has strengths, and he will have weaknesses. And it's a good idea for a church to encourage him in his strengths and compliment him in his weaknesses. Compliment with the E means to bring somebody alongside to help. The word means to help um, or give encouragement. So if somebody, for example, is bad at administration, then you bring someone alongside that's better at administration. If someone is, is poor working uh, 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 gee, with, ch with children, bring someone alongside that works with children. Someone is not that great of a counselor, bring or at least have some resources available for counseling. Personally, I never felt that was really a, a strength of mine. So when I had someone come in for counseling, I would say, I'll, I'll gladly meet with you three times. But after that, I think I'd rather you, you refer you to somebody else that probably has uh, 
more of the gift of counseling than I do. I just tend to be a little too direct and tell people, stop doing that. It didn't work. Sometimes it did, actually. So that's what we mean when we say compliment his weaknesses, okay? Now, he's not, he also wants you to know that he's not your hired gun. In other words, you're not hiring a pastor, bringing up someone on board to do the work for you, all right? And to go and shoot down the bad guys or go win people to Christ and, and you just, you know, pay his salary and come and listen to his messages. That's really not the idea of what ministry is about. And this verse is very applicable in Ephesians 4, 11 through 12, where it talks about God has given gifted men, apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors and teachers, whether you take that as one or two offices, there's some debate, but it doesn't really matter. Pastors and teachers, but look what the purpose of these gifted offices and people are. It's for the equipping of the saints. Equipping means to literally to build up for the work of the ministry. So the job of a, a, a ministerial leader, especially the, in these days, the pastors and evangelists, is to build you up so that you do the work of the ministry. That's what a church is. And it goes on to talk about how the church is then built up to be like Christ. So uh, it's, it's, a good, it's a good thing. Every pastor wants people to come up and say, hey, you know, I got a good idea. We ought to do this and this and this. Every pastor likes to hear good ideas, but they also like to hear, and I'll start it, and I'll do it, or I'll find somebody to do it. Because he's probably already got his plate full, and he would appreciate the suggestions, but he would more appreciate the help and leadership in getting it done. And of course, when we talk about um, bringing someone on like that, we're assuming that and, or you have an idea that you bring to the church, we're assuming that it would go through the proper channels in the church and uh, that there'd be some accountability system, of course. You just can't throw out any idea and say, I'm going to do this um, like a wild hare. So respect the accountability and uh, um, channels of authority in the church. But the, the work of the church is not accomplished by coming on Sunday and sitting in a seat. You know that. There's a lot that needs to be done and a lot every person can do. If I understand what the scripture says, it says every person has a gift. Every person has a gift that, that they're supposed to use and that the pastor and the leaders are to build us up so that we can use those gifts. That's his task. And he wants you to know that, that he's here not to do all the work, but to equip you to do the work. Recently, Merle, didn't you have a barn raising of sorts? Well, you, yeah, yeah now you, you did that all by yourself, right? No, you wouldn't be here today if you did that all by yourself. You had a group of men come out, and women too, and they helped raise the walls. Some could nail, some you didn't want to nail. Some, some knew how to use a square, some didn't. You made sure you got the right person on the right job, and it was a team effort. Just like the old barn raisings uh, they used to have among the Amish and, uh, and so forth. Well, the church is the same way. Everybody can do something. Uh, it's a every-member ministry. He would also like you to know that you did not hire his wife, okay? You hired him. Of course, the wife is always taken into consideration when choosing a pastor, uh, but you're actually not hiring her. She will find, uh, she has her own gifts, and she will find her niche of ministry, I'm sure, uh, because every pastor's wife I know wants to do something in the church. Uh, but there can't be the expectation of what that will be. Uh, some 
like, like the pastor himself, will have be gifted in certain areas. Now, we go and look at Genesis uh, in the original design for women, and we come to verse chapter 2, verse 20 through 22, and Adam gave names to all the cattle and the birds and the beasts and the fields, and there was not, a, not found a helper comparable to him. Now, some people look at that word helper and think it's a denigrating word um, that is disrespectful of female sex. However, that word helper is actually used of God. Check out Psalm 54.4. God is my helper. It just means somebody that comes alongside you to help you, to give you assistance. And that's what the original role for the woman was. And so as Adam looked out and named all the creature, and he saw Mr. Turtle and, and uh, Mrs. Turtle and Mr. Dog and Mrs. Dog, and wait a minute, Lord, where, there's nobody for me. And so God put him to sleep and took from his side a rib, and it says the rib which the Lord God had taken from him, the man made into a woman, and he brought her to the kitchen. No, he brought her to the nursery. He brought her to the man. The woman in a relationship, in a, in a pastor's relationship, is there to help her husband be the best that he can be, just as he is to help her to be the best she can be. But the church doesn't tell her what to do because the church did not hire the wife. And I think a new pastor would want you to know that. Does that make sense to you? Okay. Um, and they will be gifted in something, and, and they'll be happiest when they're using the gift that they have. Uh, Karen has never felt that pressure to, uh, to um, have to do anything, but she, she has mentioned that you know, she'll go to a Bible study, and when, if there's a question, everybody looks at her like she's supposed to know, <laughs> like she went through school or something for this. Uh, or, if, you know, she loves to work behind the scene with children in the kitchen, and, and, and she'll do anything for the church. But you ask her to do a Bible study, and you'll see spontaneous combustion. It's just done. <laughs> so that's what some things I think he would like you to know ahead of time. Now, how do you treat your pastor, and what are some things that uh, we can do to help our pastors? Well, first of all, follow his lead, especially if he looks like Charleston Heston. All right. <clears throat> Follow his lead. And here's a direct word to a congregation of Hebrew Christians in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive. This was in their situation, of course, probably very, very important because the church was threatened by outside forces. We're not sure exactly what. They were being persecuted, and they were tempted not to meet together. And, uh, of course, that would put a lot of kinks in the chain of leadership and, and, and relationships and so forth. And so he ends the book by saying, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls and as those who must give account. We'll get back to that later. But the point is, obey them. You've carefully selected them. You've carefully chosen them. Don't blindly obey them, but obey them in the Lord, just like uh, wives should obey and be submissive to their husbands in the Lord, assuming that the leadership is a godly leadership. So submit to godly leadership. And um, that would apply, I think, not only to the senior pastor, but the, the pastoral staff and the elders in the church. It happens to be my belief that uh, the pastor is, is an elder, but he's a lead elder. There are different views on this, but there actually is no word pastor in the New Testament. It's the word literally shepherd. 
That's the word. And I think that word is used interchangeably sometimes with the word elder. So the pastor is the shepherd among the elders, and he is a leader among the elders. He's leader by virtue of his calling, virtue of his training, virtue of his gifting, and virtue of the and in virtue of the time that he spends. Because a lot of your elders that work full time jobs, they've not been theologically trained and so forth. So it requires a leader who is called in to be what was usually called the lead pastor and give that kind of guidance. So trust somebody who's been called, who's been put through the rigors of theological education, who has church experience, who's gifted to do what you want him to do. There has to be a degree of trust and follow his lead. He may come and he may have a new vision for the church. He probably will. I hope that he would because, you know, it, 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 we don't want him to run in the same track that somebody else might have set. We want him to have his own vision for the church. Now that means that there's probably going to be change introduced. I don't think it's going to happen the first day that he comes, but eventually there'll be changes subjected. And it's good to trust in somebody who has prayerfully and carefully looked at change, planned change, and explains what the change is. So as sheep, we should follow a shepherd. And, of course, that doesn't mean the shepherd is unaccountable because it says there, first of all, he has to give an account. Um, He has to give an account, first of all, to the great shepherd, Jesus Christ, but then he has to give an account to those who hold him accountable, in which in most churches is a board of directors or a board of elders or deacons, however it's structured. Here it would be the elders first, and then ultimately the congregation as well. Another suggestion, how to treat your pastor, speak to him directly and gently. this isn't necessarily true of pastors, but it does involve the, one of the things, and First Timothy 5 does involve uh, elders. But the general wisdom for churches in Matthew 18, if there's a conflict between two people that says, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And I'm just going to stop there because it goes on and, and it says, if he doesn't listen to you, bring two or three others with you. And it, go, it goes on from there. If they don't listen, bring them before the church and so forth. Let's just start with that first idea. Go to him alone. Don't build up an opposition. Don't don't have a partisan spirit and recruit people to your side. Go to that person alone. Let them explain. Let them have a good conversation. Things can be resolved at that level without raising conflict throughout the whole church. I think that's the wisdom that Jesus gave as he foresaw the church in Matthew 18. He knew we weren't going to get along all that great together sometimes. And then in 1 Timothy 5.19, Paul's advice to Timothy uh, is do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. So anybody can just spout out and complain or accuse somebody or accuse a leader or something, but can they back it up with two or three witnesses? It's a good fail-safe for um, treating people equitably and fairly in the church and kindly, I might say as well. So speak directly to the pastor if you have a concern. And gently, okay? Don't come in angry and, and throw a bomb, all right? Give him the benefit of the doubt. Now, 1 Corinthians 13 is the love chapter, and it describes what love is. And I think this applies here. So we're talking about love, and it goes on to describe a lot of different behaviors involved in love. But at the very end of verse 7, it says, love bears all things, holds up under burdens, I I assume other people's burdens as well, believes all things, and I think this is the key phrase for us here, 
assumes the best is what I've always understood that to mean. If somebody says something, assume it's true unless proven false or give them the benefit of the doubt. Hopes all things. Always hope for the best. Hope for the best truth, the best version, and endures all things. Puts up, puts up with a lot of things before casting a final verdict or cutting someone off or whatever the end game situation might be. So give the pastor the benefit of the doubt. Now, as a pastor, and others would tell you, in sessions, counseling sessions, and just from getting to know people, you find out things about people. They tell you that they have issues and so forth. And that these are things that I and other pastors, out of integrity, our office, we do not tell other people. So sometimes in, the, in a church, the problem may arise, or there may be somebody who has you know, got, gotten a burr under his saddle, could use other figures of speech, but he got a burr under his saddle and he's angry, she's angry about something. And the pastor knows, you know what? She's on drug therapy. She's been seeing a psychiatrist. He's uh, in anger management. Um, he's going through marital problems, but he can't tell you that. He can't tell you that. So you, sometimes it's good to give him the benefit of the doubt. You know, I remember a long time ago when, uh, you know, it's, it was, it's been a nice occasion for me to be pastor, but a long time ago, near the beginning, there was a, a, someone causing some issues uh, and, and uh, accusing me of something. And I knew the baggage and the psychological baggage that they had, but I couldn't tell anybody that. Uh, so, you know, I always just say, Lord, you just got my back on this one. That's what I do. Uh, and and it, it turned out fine. But just be aware that, uh, give them the benefit of that because Sometimes the pastor knows a lot more than you do about people and what they might be saying. Don't compare him to other pastors. Now, 1 Corinthians 4, Paul is writing to defend his own authenticity as an apostle against those who were in the Corinthian church saying he's not the real thing. You know, they were trying to subvert him and they were judging him. And here's Paul's attitude towards that. He said, let us consider let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Now, a steward is somebody who's put in responsible, responsible position over somebody else's property. A church, a minister, a servant like Paul, was, felt like he was a steward over what God had given him as a ministry. And any pastor should have that attitude towards his church, at least. He says, moreover, it's required in stewards that one be found faithful. Now, faithful to who? It's faithful to God. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. For I know of nothing against myself, yet I'm not justified by this, but he who judges me is the Lord. See, Paul was saying, look, they're trying to compare me, these super apostles in Corinth, he calls them, or trying to compare me to a false teacher or whatever. I don't even judge myself because I don't even know myself that well. I, I'm going to trust the Lord to have my back. And I'm going to wait for that day where he will judge me and all the truth will come out in the open. The point being is don't compare him to other pastors. We don't know what God knows. And um, we need to give um, people their own uh, niche of ministry and gifting and so forth. Uh, every pastor is going to be different. That's for sure. They're going to speak differently, preach differently, teach differently, relate differently, uh, different uh, hobbies and, and likes and dislikes. Um, they're going to like a different flavor ice cream than you. It'll go on and on. But every pastor is going to be different. 
when I first came to this church, I remember there was one fellow who got kind of close to me, and um, he really wanted to see the church change and, uh, and, and be like this church where he grew up in. And he mentioned this preacher. I, knew, I know the preacher. He's out there today, and you know, I, he's an acquaintance of mine. Uh, and he approaches things completely different than the way I do. He, he's very theologically oriented, logically oriented, and has this whole thing built up and, and, and so forth. And that's the way he taught. I'm not, I'm not saying I'm illogical. I'm just saying I don't approach it the same, the same way he does. And I couldn't be him. I wasn't going to try to be him. And eventually this person became very dis, in, in, uh, disgruntled at me because I wasn't more like this pastor that he had grown up under. But that wasn't really fair, is it? I'm a different person. I have different gifts and so forth. And you have to give that to whoever it is that comes along. Um, however, if someone sounds like a different pastor, if there are, and this is a, this is a real problem in, in the pastoral ministry world today, believe it or not, that pastors are uh, plagiarizing other sermons and preaching them from the pulpit as if they are their own. I read somebody recently, I was just reading an article about that recently, about the head of a large denomination plagiarizing other sermons. I happen to know of a local case where the pastor was taking Chuck Swindoll's illustrations and putting himself in the illustration like it happened to him. And my friend got suspicious about that and did some checking online, and he listened to Chuck Swindoll's sermon, and it was pretty identical. He had basically plagiarized the sermon, and so he left the church. So that, that kind of stuff can go on. Uh, we don't want to compare them to other churches, other pastors, but if they start to sound like another pastor, be a little suspicious. Oh, so fun. Pray for him. Now, there's a general admonition in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, to pray for all of your leaders. And it's so important, he says, I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks, kind of different emphases on these different words for prayer, be made for all men. All men. And of course, his list includes those who would not be saved, like kings and all who are in authority. But in that one, all who are in authority, I think you could, you could include your pastor, your bo- as well as your boss and your political leaders and so forth. The idea is to pray for everybody with the goal that we live a quiet and peaceable life in godliness and reverence and that they would be saved if they're not saved. So, I mean, there were other passages where we could have found the admonition to pray for people, but this one kind of includes everybody and should remind us to pray for your pastors. Now, if Satan is going to attack a church, it seems to me his strategy would be either to attack the weakest link and cause a problem from the ground up, or he would attack the strongest link and cause a problem from the top down. It seems like one of those strategies would probably work for him. So pray for everybody in the church. You see somebody struggling, the weakest link, pray for them. You see somebody like the pastor, who's supposed to be very spiritual and strong, pray for him and his protection against Satan. Satan's targeting all of us. I just think he might target some of us more than others at different times. Um, so the best wisdom then is to just pray for everyone and their families. And you know what happens when you pray for people? You don't criticize them as much because you really take sides with them in prayer. And then be encouraging. You know, the Hebrew Christians needed a lot of encouragement because they were being persecuted, as I said, and they weren't 
they were neglecting to meet together. And so the author of Hebrews writes and says, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. Don't neglect to assemble together. Uh, meet together to stir up love and good works because that's what happens when we meet face to face and and talk and find out about each other's lives. We're motivated to help one another, to love one another, to uh, meet a need in in a life that we hear about. Um, But exhorting one another in so much more as you see the day approaching. The word exhorting can mean encourage someone to do something. Uh, Certainly pastors would need this as much as anybody in a church congregation. They would perhaps be one who would be under the most threat if there was a persecution. So encourage and exhort your pastor as well. Um, try not to be discouraging. Um, express appreciation. Ministry is a difficult job. Um, and I'm kind of stealing a remark here, but pastoring would be a lot of fun if it wasn't for people. <laughs> and another, uh, another remark someone made is, hey, sheep bite, you know. It's hard to be a shepherd because sheep bite. Um, But express appreciation and share encouraging words. Uh, You can do that verbally, in person, on the phone, with a phone call, a visit, a gift, a letter, a card, uh, a treat, taking them out to dinner, or even coffee or something like this. I actually have a file, and I have it to this day in my drawer on my bottom right side. It's called encouraging words. Because when I was a pastor, I get so discouraged sometimes, and if someone wrote me an encouraging note, I'd put it in that file. And I could pull it out today and see, see uh, notes from probably 30 years ago. I really don't pull it out today because I don't get discouraged that much anymore. Uh, as part of that is because I'm not a pastor anymore. <laughs> I'm dealing with people on the other side of the world. <clears throat> no, but when I get testimonies today in email and so forth, I do put them in an email file. And those, that's my encouraging words file. But I actually have a, a, a literal physical paper file from the days when I was pastoring where someone said something, I said, put it in there. So that when I had a bad day, which happened, and I felt all down on myself, I would pull that out and read a few notes from people who said, hey, appreciate your ministry, really learned something. And that kind of thing is important to every pastor. They're usually responsible for many, many things that go on, especially the smaller the church, the more a person has, has to actually do themselves. They can't hire somebody to do this or that. Mega church pastors have it real easy, actually. So be encouraging and be generous. This is speaking directly, I think, about the rulers in the church, the leaders in the church. Galatians 6.6, 6, let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. Not necessarily only the leader, senior pastor, lead pastor, but anyone who teaches has gone through a lot of work. They traffic in words. They're going to face a special judgment. James 3.1 says, so be generous with them. Share in all good things. Break them off a piece of that Kit Kat bar. Be generous. However, the church has not really been, not this church, I speak in general, the church has not really been that generous. Uh, statistics, I looked up recent statistics. Out of all those who claim to be evangelical Christians, give less than 2% of their income. 28% of those who claim to be evangelicals give nothing. Give nothing. 
only 8% give 10% or more. That just gives you a picture of the landscape out there. So if you average it all together, the average person who says, I'm born again, I believe the Bible, an evangelical Christian gives about 2.4 or less of their income. Now, theoretically, if a pastor was coming and people gave 10%, how many families, not including building expenses, electric bills, insurance and stuff, if a person came and people gave 10% of their income, how many families would it take to support that pastor? 10, right? Theoretically. Of course, you need a little bit more because we have building and facility and things like that. But it really should take 20, it seems to me, 20 families should well be able to support a pastor at the same level that those in the church live. And we don't want a pastor to live at a level lower than you. So he's going to Chick-fil-A while he looks across the street, you going to Outback. All right. That's, that's not being very nice. And look at 1 Timothy 5.17. Let the elders who rule well, now there are some elders who rule, and when they rule well, be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. So it kind of singles out those elders who are very active in ruling and teaching of Bible doctrine, and it says they're worthy of double honor. Now that word honor does mean to esteem something and give value to it, but actually the leading Greek lexicon assigns this to the use of money. And it says, it says uh, honor conferred through compensation. That's the de- de- dictionary definition in the leading Greek lexicon. Honor conferred through compensation. How else do you show double honor? Say, thank you, thank you. <laughs> so the, the, the tangible way to show double honor is to pay somebody a lot or uh, twice. Give them the whole Kit Kat bar. Be generous. I was very fortunate to be an assistant pastor under a pastor who saw my needs as a student and our family and was always advocating for the church to help us more and more with tuition and things like that. And I've always been grateful to uh, uh, Pastor Dave, who's down the road in Cleburne, who to Today, tonight, I will go down there to celebrate his 40th anniversary down there. I worked for five years under him, and I was there before he was there. And uh, they're celebrating 40 years of him, his pastoral presence there. He's one of my mentors uh, on my board, and, uh, but he's always stood up for me uh, and in, a finan- in a financial sense. And I so appreciate that. And then finally, be friends with the pastor. Um, you know, friendship is not necessarily something that happens automatically. Uh, in fact, Proverbs tells us if you want a man who has friends must himself be friendly. So somebody who sits there on Sunday morning says, nobody's nice to me, nobody's a friend to me, nobody pays attention to me, nobody asks me over to their home. It's just turned that a question around. Have you walked up to somebody and talked today? Have you invited them to lunch today? Have you invited them into your home today? Well, so don't expect the pastor to... to uh, just invade your life and say, I'm going to be your friend, you have to show yourself friendly. You're going to have to have social occasions to get to know one another, find things in common, and things like that. It takes a little work, actually, to be a friend of someone. And let me tell you that most, many, many pastors lead a kind of lonely life, uh, as many leaders do. Uh, and sometimes the loneliness comes from you know, being criticized 
or you're always questioning whether you're doing better, a good enough job, or you're looking at the big church over here that's growing fast, and you're wondering what you are doing wrong, you think, uh, where you might be doing everything right. But there's another reason I think pastors don't have friends. Is it's, a, it's a matter of trust. Can I really trust somebody in that church and tell them my issues, my problems? Can I really let, my, let down my hair around them, so to speak? Uh, or will it backfire someday? And that sounds a little cynical, doesn't it? In fact, I was surprised the first time I heard that it was in seminary, and uh, um, Dr. Sumi, who was the dean of students, took our pastoral class one day, and he said to us, he said, when you go into a new church, he said, be careful of someone who comes up and wants to be your friend immediately. And really, you know, say, hey, you can really talk to me and confide in me. Because he's probably recruiting, maybe not, but he's probably recruiting you into his side or into his issue or into his circle because there's something going on in that church you don't understand yet. And I said, boy, that's pretty cynical until I saw it happen. (laughs) And so pastors have this natural distrust of getting real close to people because they don't know when that's going to backfire. Like this fellow who said he wanted to get real close to me and help me with the church and, and so forth. He just really wanted me to become a different person. When I, what, when I wasn't, he left kind of disgruntled and left a little wake too. Anyway, oh, the joys of being a pastor. Really, it is a wonderful position, a very rewarding position, and there's so many things I miss about being a pastor. You know, I'm only here about once a month, but I miss getting to know people in their lives and what's going on and, and being a part of the, the births and the weddings and the, and the funerals, all of that, um, and the struggles all in between. It's so hard to be overseas and hear about somebody having a difficult time, or, you know, I was overseas when my own baby was born and some of my best friends died and so forth. Uh, but that's, uh, that's what I've chosen to do. Let me conclude with two, re- two, two thoughts. Remember, the pastor has to give an account. And we want him to be able to give a good account. And that's, again, from Hebrews 13, 17. Uh, Obey him who rules o- them who rule over you and, and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls. They're like shepherds watching out for the dangers. They're guarding the doctoral gates. They're guarding the social gates, the personal gates. And uh, they have to give an account. Now, he's talking here about giving an account, I believe, to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when they do, let them do it with joy, not grief. And for that would be unprofitable for you. looks like some of it might drip down upon us and how we treated that pastor. And then, you know, probably the most common sense advice to close with, and this is not written directly to pastors at all, but just one of many passages in Philippians and the New Testament that tell us, look, just love one another. When people love one another, they get along one another, when they are like-minded, of one accord, of one mind, when they treat others as more important than themselves, anybody would have a joy pastoring that kind of church. The best thing you can do for any pastor is just to get along with each other and love each other and not become arrogant, boastful, and proud, and critical. And that, I think, is one of the best things you can do for the pastor of any church. Well, I think there's a reason why we don't see a lot about how to treat a pastor uh, in particular and with specifics in the New Testament is because we have passages like this. And if you do that and you apply that to the pastor, things are going to be good and you're going to be treating him well. Remember, his job is to come and to lead us into a closer relationship to Jesus Christ. He is not the Messiah. 
He's not Superman. He's not Chuck Swindoll or any super pastor. He's a man with strengths and weaknesses. We'll discover them both, hopefully, and you will be able to use him in appropriate ways. But his job is to point us and the community to Jesus Christ as Savior. Jesus is the one who came. Jesus is the one who died. Jesus is the one who lived a perfect life. And he rose from the dead. And he promised eternal life to whoever would believe in him. And if you have any questions about your eternal life, uh, or any questions about where you're going to spend eternity, the answer is not in the pastor. The answer is in Jesus Christ, who died for you, rose again, and gives you the gift of eternal life. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you so much for taking this church so far in a search for the right pastor. We're trusting that you're answering that prayer, and we look forward with excitement um, to the time where we can work together as one. And Father, we thank you for uh, the words from, from the Bible that, that give us some direction. And uh, we're just going to trust you in the process as the church adjusts and grows and the pastor adjusts and grows as well. May we always show love and respect and honor. And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources or to help spread the message of God's life-changing grace, visit our website at gracelife.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at simplybygrace at gracelife.org. See you next time.